Hey, Doug, how you doing? I'm doing great. How are you? Hey, man, thanks for thanks for joining us. I know you're super busy. Um, I'm glad we got this IG Live thing to work. Um, as an aside, I'm super hoarse. I'm going to try to get through the interview. Um, but anyway, thanks for joining us. I'm going to do a little brief introduction, uh, if, if that's okay with you. Um, uh, so, sure. Dr. <laughs> uh, so, Dr. Doug Brockmeyer, I'm going to start with his lesser uh, impressive feat, which is the fact that he's an internationally recognized pediatric neurosurgeon. Uh, very impressive resume. College at Harvard, med school at Case Western, internship, residency, and fellowship uh, at the University of Utah. He's currently professor and chief of pediatric neurosurgery at the University of Utah. Uh, he is best known as a world-renowned expert in craniocervical junction disorders. Uh, now for his more impressive feat, in my opinion, uh, is summoning Mount Everest. Um, as background, reaching uh, the top of Mount Everest, which is the highest point on the planet at nearly 30,000 feet, uh, is a legendary feat that's been only accomplished by less than 5,000 people in all of human history. Uh, the trek to the summit takes months of physical preparation, weeks of, of, of acclimating, uh, and you have to get used to obviously being at that oxygen-starved altitude. Uh, climbing Mount Everest is one of the most dangerous pursuits in the world. Uh, I didn't know this, but the fatality rate is almost 9% of climbers who have attempted to summit. To date, nearly 400 people have uh, perished and 4,500 have summited. Uh, the dangers are, uh, are, are, are pretty obvious. Avalanches, cracking ice flows, uh, deadly crevices, just a few. Uh, the chief impediment, however, is the high altitude uh, with extreme altitude sickness. They call it the death zone when it's over 8,000 meters. Uh, Doug reached his lifelong goal in 2005 uh, when he summited Mount Everest. Uh, as background, and we'll talk more about it, but he kept up regular rock climbing routines for 10 years uh, before trying to climb Mount Everest. Uh, he also lives in Salt Lake City, so he has access to those mountains. On vacations, he visited more challenging regions, such as Peru and Alaska. Uh, in total, after a decade of training, uh, two years of planning, and three months on location, uh, he finally achieved his goal of summiting Mount Everest. Uh, it's, it's an unbelievable um, accomplishment, something that I you know, respect tremendously, and, and I'm very happy to have you on here just talking about your goals, how this came up, and, and kind of what you had to go through. Yeah, well, first, uh, thanks, Rick, for the invitation and that very kind introduction. I don't know if I deserve all of that, but I really appreciate it. Um, I guess there have been a couple of questions pop up. You could just start with, like, motivation uh, to do something like this. And I just sort of grew up in the mountains. I grew up in California and I spent a lot of time in the Sierras growing up and I just love mountains and climbing and, and all that it entails. And it was, for me, it was just a natural evolution. Uh, living in Salt Lake City, like you said, was just a huge advantage because everything's so accessible here and I can do stuff year round. But then you say, well, you have this, you know, goal in the back of your head uh, and you know, how do you pursue it? So you have to go out and do other bigger things and, and sort of work your way into it. I, I think that going there as your, 
as your not necessarily your first trip, but an early trip going to the Himalaya to climb is pretty much, is pretty insane, you know. So I, I'd done a lot of climbing around the world, and I was pretty comfortable um, with the the climbing part. And the big wild card is just how your body reacts to the altitude. So when did you first? When did that first idea of I'm going to go after Mount Everest occur to you? Oh, man, I was three years old and I saw the National Geographic. I'm mean, five years old, 1965, when Americans got to the top or whatever, that National Geographic thing. And that sets the hook pretty deep. And it's always in the back of your head. Um, I guess I'd have to say, you know, it's always in the back of every climber's head. And I just sort of reached a point in my career where I could take a little bit more time off and I can sort of control my life a little better. and. I, I had the experience, I had a very supportive wife, uh, Debbie, uh, uh, was awesome about it. And, and then the other hard part was just convincing my partners that I was going to be gone for two to three months. That was kind of, they'd have to take call for two to three months every other night. That didn't go over very well. <laughs> I mean, did anyone think that you were crazy? Yeah, my parents, <laughs> uh, my kids, everybody thought I was insane. But, you know, they were, they were, like I said, I had a lot of support from a lot of people. And, uh, you know, once I found somebody to climb with, you know, I didn't go with the traditional commercial expedition. I went with one guy in particular, a guy named Dave Hahn, uh, who had summited um, four times before. Maybe some people know his name. But more importantly to me is that he had turned around within, 500 meters or a thousand meters of the summit twice uh you know you're so close and you turn around because conditions aren't right and that's the kind of person i wanted to go with you know somebody who's really safe i mean you go up with 10 fingers and 10 toes and you come back with 10 fingers and 10 toes and it, it's really really important so um I, th I thought we were a good team we were supported by a larger expedition from international mountain guides so the way it works is that you kind of buy a logistical package from one of these big uh, companies. And it's kind of like, it's like buying a Subaru, you know, that's, it's that kind of price point and you just, you just got to pay it. And that that's tense, oxygen, food, share of support, all that kind of stuff. And once you have that in place, you know, and you have somebody to climb with, uh, at least in my case, somebody to climb with, it's just all about, just, you know, you just take it one day at a time. You just take it one day at a time after that. So tell me a little bit about your decade of training and how you ramped it up slowly, slowly, slowly. And at what point did you realize that you're ready to pull the trigger and say, I'm ready to do Everest? Uh, I had done a couple of Denali trips uh, and those went really well. So that's 20,000 feet. You know, Denali's interesting because it probably it's more like a twenty-three or twenty thousand four-foot mountain because of the lower barometric pressure near the poles. It acts like a higher mountain. And then I went down and uh, climbed uh, Waskaran down in uh, Peru, and that was like twenty-two-four. And those were all without oxygen, and I, I did fine. You know, I mean, they're 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 strenuous, but you know, I, I thought I was fine. And every I, you don't have to go down and do another lower 8,000 meter peak uh, 
like like Choyo Yu or something like that to to prove yourself. Uh, at least it, it it worked out for me. You know, physiologically, it's you're either gonna, it's either going to work or it's not. And if you like, there are people who have climbed Choyo Yu that's just a little over eight thousand feet who've done poorly on Everest. So there's really no guarantee. Gotcha. And it, you say it was two years of planning. Tell us about. I mean, obviously, it's very intense planning, but the two years of planning and then the three months on location, how do you plan that? How do you time that? And why are the three months on location so important? Um, yeah, the, the two years is just, again, you're just sort of being in the mountains. A lot. I live near the world's largest open air gymnasium, you know, the Wasatch Mountains outside of Salt Lake. So I spent a lot of time just with a pack on my back, you know, going up and down the hill. And cause that's what you do on big mountains. So just getting really used to that. And then, you know, the, it's the, 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 the trip is anywhere between two to three months, depending on who you go with and how you do the trip. Uh, there are trips that you can, you can do it faster. You know, there's, there's companies that let you pre-acclimatize now, you know, with oxygen tents at home. And then they get you very rapidly to base camp and you can do it in a month or month and a half, probably more like a month, I think. So there's, there, there are those, uh, 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 packages out there. They're, they're expensive, but they're definitely out there. So, and you, with us, you know, you fly to Kathmandu and then you fly a plane to Lukla, uh, which is at about 10,000 feet. And you take, uh, two weeks to trek from Lukla to base camp. And then from base camp, you start going up and down the mountain. They're called rotations. You go up to camp one, acclimatize, come down, camp two, come down, camp three, uh, and then come down. And, uh, and then you eventually get ready for your summit attempt. And that's all the way up to camp four at the South Cole, 8,000 meters. And then, most, and then for most people, the next day, they're off to the summit. Now, tell me about the timing of how important timing is like the weather storm fronts you basically have to be ready to go at any time and once the weather clears you go yeah that's a that's a really good question uh so it's really uh the, the whole the most people know there's this weather window you know on Everest that people talk about and the deal is is that the jet stream is on the himalaya for most of the year and that brings the monsoon or, or sorry, the monsoon in the Indian Ocean comes up and pushes the jet stream north, and then it gives you that weather window. And the jet stream's like a big snake, three-dimensional snake in the air. And unluck unluckily for us in our year, the jet stream was late in coming, and uh, the, so the weather window didn't materialize. And there were days that were really nice, and there were days it was terrible. So we ended up staying two extra weeks. We were the latest first summit day ever and it was may 30th uh summit day ever on the mountain and we just hung around and hung around and hung around and we were these the group that i was with was the group you know setting the lines and we we basically just summited all together on one day from the south side and it's really unusual to happen uh, like that these days, but we just, like you talked about, you have to be really flexible and you have to be ready to go when that opportunity comes up. Now I have to ask again, like you're, you're there, you're getting ready to summit any last minute doubts, like what the hell am I doing? Like, should I be doing this? Or like by that point, 
you're so invested and your mindset is 100% like, I'm doing this. Yeah, yeah, that was weird. You know, once you get to the, you, you spend the night at the South Coal and you we went to sleep at about six at night and woke up at eight. You're not getting a lot of sleep up there. And we got ready, we had breakfast and we were out the door at 10 at night ready to climb. And we were gonna climb through the night and some of the next morning. And yeah, you felt, at least I personally felt like I totally belonged there. I felt very comfortable. It wasn't, I wasn't freaked out. You were heavily invested for sure. Uh, but uh, I, I didn't feel nervous or, or freaked out at all. And you know, when, you, when, when I was at least reading about summiting and all the different dangers, what was your danger? What, what, what was your scariest moment? Was there any life-threatening events that were happening for you or your team? Yeah, I, so I don't know if it was super life-threatening, but it was kind of scary. We got to an area called the Balcony, which is at uh, about 27,000 feet, and it's really windy there, and it's super cold. I don't even know how cold it is. You know, you're, it's way below zero, and the wind's blowing, and I didn't have any protective eyewear, and you have a mask <laughs> over your face, kind of like, you know, pre-COVID COVID time, but you have this mass that you're climbing on. And I looked over in my cornea, one of my corneas flash froze, and I got really blurry vision, and I couldn't see really well. And I, I told Dave, I go, look, I'm, I'm, I think I froze my cornea. And he says, well, do you have some protective eyewear? And I said, yeah, and I put some clear lenses on. And I said, he said, well, just let me know how it's going. If your other cornea freezes, then we may have to turn around. I go, well, I'll, I'll definitely, you know, keep an eye out on that. And so as soon about four in the morning, the sun came up kind of over to bed. It rises. As soon as it got uh, light enough, I put goggles on, which protected my eyes better. And I could feel my vision and my cornea is doing better because this is a known entity that happens and we were kind of prepared for it but that would yeah that could have turned you around for sure and if you I, can't see you can't climb for sure um <laughs> you know try to describe try to describe what the weather is like as you're trying to summit at thirty thousand feet uh in the himalayas the wind the temperature the snow how narrow of a passage are we talking about i mean it certainly sounds terrifying back when i was reading about it yeah. Uh, so we had a we had an amazing day, and you know you're you're going up, and you're going up pretty slowly because they're setting in lines, and you have a lot of time to sort of think and take it all in. And at one point, I think we hit the south summit at about twenty eight thousand feet, and I remember distinctly thinking, "This is going to happen." And it still kind of gives me chills down my spine. You know, the weather was good. The sun was out. The wind wasn't coming up. I go, I can't believe this is actually going to happen. We're going to, we're going to make it. We're going to get up and we're going to get down. This is great. And, you know, a lifelong dream is going to happen or, or it's going to uh, uh, come true. And uh, it's just, it's, it's kind of, it's a mind blowing experience. Um, I mean, you're, you get your hands are, your hands and feet are pretty busy, you know, getting to the top, but your mind's thinking, wow, I can't believe this is actually happening. It's, it, it sounds absolutely incredible. Um, well, how long did the actual ascent on the last day take? I've seen pictures of that narrow passageway. How, how long was that final ascent? 
Yeah. So again, ours are a little special circumstance. You know, we started at 10 in the morning. We summited around nine in the morning, which is pretty typical. You know, a lot of people can do it. If, if the, if the, if the route is in and there's fixed lines, you can get up and down in, you know, three or four hours if you were really fast, you know, that last little line, you know, that famous picture that everybody saw in the New York times, where there's that big conga line uh, that would take hours you know, to get through. Uh, we were through pretty quick in 2005. You know, it's it's kind of freaky because you look on one side and there's Tibet and that's like 9,000 feet down on one side. And then the other side down into the Kumbu Glacier is about 7,000 feet. So you got to kind of watch your step. <laughs> Obviously, you don't want to blow it there. So I mean, <laughs> how narrow of a passageway is it before falling 8,000 feet? Yeah, it's 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 totally doable. I mean, anybody who's a reasonable mountaineer can make it to the top. Um, you know, it's like half the width of a sidewalk or something. It's not that once the <laughs> once the boot track goes in, it's not that bad. I mean, the thing that kind of freaks people out is the is the Hillary step thing, and you know, there's a lot of fixed line, and you get to the bottom, and most people you turn up your oxygen to a higher rate. And then you, you climb the fixed line and up you go. And then before you know it, it's over. And then it's a, like a 10 minute walk to the top. Yeah. So uh, it, it's pretty straightforward. Now tell me just cause you briefly got into it, but I really want to hear about the feeling of accomplishment when you're on top of the world, having trained for this for 10 years, thought about it for your whole life, been in Nepal for three months, life and death situation, literally 10% people dying. You're at the top, you've made it. What does that feel like? Uh, just gratitude, you know, sheer gratitude. And um, I'd sort of made a, a deal with myself to kind of approach the whole thing in kind of like a, a Buddhist type mentality, sort of right mind, right intent. You know, every every step of the way you're doing everything with intention and meaning. And it's, it's a once in a lifetime chance to, to do these things. And when you finally take your last step to the top, it's just really powerful and you're just filled with gratitude. At least I was. I mean, it just, I see those pictures and obviously I've done nothing anywhere near that, but it looks like that's a feeling that you'll never forget for the rest of your life. I don't know. I've seen you play a pretty mean game of softball, so uh, yes. I, th I think you're probably pretty close. <laughs> I'm, I'm assuming it's a little bit different than conquering Mount Everest, but anyway, thanks for the compliment. <laughs> yeah, I appreciate that. Um, you know, actually, one of the interesting things I was reading, um, actually kind of sad, to be honest with you, is how many people have died on the way to the summit and the fact that most of these uh, corpses, unfortunately, are not retrieved because of where they are, and they're frozen in place. Did, how scary was that, or how how just emotional was that to walk by these bodies as memories as to what can happen to you up there? Yeah, you know, the year that I went up there, they had done some housekeeping, if you want to call it that, and some of the bodies had been removed. There, I I, I don't keep up on it and sort of see what the current situation is if there's still bodies uh, on the way up i think they've done a lot of uh a big effort to get get rid of or bring the bodies down um yeah it's it's scary you know it's it's a reminder uh people uh you know you're walking down from the summit and people just are just laying there i mean they're just 
you know, exhausted either on the way up or the way down and they just kind of lay there and hopefully they get up and you go down. It's, it's ethically tough. You know, if you come across someone like that, what do you do? Is it all kind of every man for themselves or do you take care of other people? You know, if you have the resources, you don't want to die up there. I, I, I just want to make a point that there's, you know, that, a lot, I mean, not a lot, like 100% of the success is due to Sherpas and Sherpa support. And there's, a, and there's a lot of people who go up with Sherpas who push themselves beyond their capability. And they're going up and they're sort of stringing themselves out and they're really at the edge. And they put everybody at risk. They put themselves at risk. They put their Sherpas at risk because they'd have to rescue them or bring them down. They put their Sherpa's families at risk, you know, and they, if that patient, if that person dies, you know, taking care of a Westerner that's summiting, then their, you know, their kids and their family, you know, they don't have any income and things could go very bad for them. So you, you need to just be aware of all of this stuff and not get into a point where, where it's, where it's, um, you know, tenuous and it's, it's, you know, life or death kind of situation. We'll be turning back before that. You know, you mentioned on the descent, you know, what I found interesting when I was reading about Everest is that actually going down has a disproportionate number of deaths, that the descent is actually more dangerous than the ascent, which which doesn't really make sense, like to, just to the average layperson. Why is the descent so difficult and why are there so many deaths during descent as opposed to ascent? Um, you know, people, I mean, there's a variety of factors. Obviously, you just get tired you can get exhausted oh we lost your volume there can i think you're muted there you go. okay yeah, can you hear I me can, now yeah so you could run out of you know just get tired run out of food or calories um uh you know l lose your way run out of your weather window run out of oxygen miscalculate your oxygen uh, those could easily all happen. And you're just not thinking quite as clearly. I mean, you're definitely impaired. <laughs> There's no doubt about it. You're definitely impaired. You know, I mean, I just, you, so on the way down, on the way down, were you having, were, like, did you feel like you had brain fog, like you weren't getting enough oxygen and exhaustion uh, was set in? Yeah, we, you know, we, I mean, I don't, brain fog. I mean, anybody who's done kind of endurance stuff, you sort of hit a point where, you just run out of calories, you know, you hit, you, you hit the wall, you bonk or whatever. And the thing is, is that up there, you're just not eating or drinking a lot. So you're really running on reserves and it's easy just to hit, hit the wall. And, um, and then you're just, you got to sit down, you got to eat something. Uh, the, my guy, uh, Dave, I was with kind of hit the wall around the South summit and we stopped to eat when we were coming down and I, I hit the wall right above, uh, uh, camp four had to sit down, eat something, you know, have some goo or whatever. And you got to take care of yourself. It's just, it's a, it's like a, it's like a two and a half month exercise in body maintenance and just taking care of little problems before they become big problems and just keeping on top of stuff. Are you still mountain climbing? Uh, I, you know, I did a lot after that, you know, I, I, for the next, 10 years after that, I, I did a ton. I went back to Alaska and did a bunch of big climbs. I haven't climbed that much in the last five years. I got other 
stuff going on that's keeping me busy. And uh, so the answer to that is really no at this point. I'm going to have to ask, as a fellow brain surgeon, did when you went back to work, I mean, was it boring to do brain surgery after climbing Mount Everest? <laughs> yeah. Just... yeah, first I had to remember how to do it. You know, I had to go, well, where does this go? I have no idea. <laughs> Uh, yeah, once you you kind of get back into your groove and then it's no big deal, you know, after a, well, actually I came, I came back, I flew home straight from Kathmandu. I came to Salt Lake city and I just went to the office. I flew in like Sunday morning. I went to the office to go pick something up and my partner, maybe some people on the audience know Jack Walker, who's my, you know, him senior partner. And I walked in and he had been on call for two months. He said, Oh, you're back. Oh, you're on call today. <laughs> I went, oh, no. <laughs> wow, there was no rest for the weary. No rest. <laughs> no rest. 